Dave Mays, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the show, so it's uh, always an honor to be on. Oh, I'm a huge fan of every time we get to talk. We're still talking over each other. I don't know if there's a delay here, but I guess I'll edit it out afterwards. Um, so you haven't been on for a little while. Last time was episode, I don't know, somebody, somebody check what episode was Dave on last time. But I, I had a tweet this week that I don't introduce my guests well enough. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that critique seriously. And let's, let's have a proper introduction, Dave. Um, we know each other through YouTube. You've been changing up what you're doing on YouTube lately. So we'll go into that just a little bit. And we had a chance to hang out in Vegas recently, which is going to be a lot of the topic of the show. But tell me a little more about what do you do? How did you end up doing what it is? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Vegas was a blast, dude. And thank you, by the way, for coming to the in and out hangout that I hosted. Uh, you and your lovely wife, Anya, came and we just had a great, great old time. How late did you guys stay after we left? Because I left after two hours and you guys were still there. Oh, no, uh, <laughs> like 20 more minutes. But I heard okay. I just talked to somebody that stayed the rest of the night and apparently went till 3 a.m. So I think I left oh at just gosh. the right time. Yeah. Not at in and out the whole time. They went somewhere okay. else. I don't know. It's so amazing when uh, things become physical from the internet. You know, I just put a thing out and I was just like, hey, come, you know, if you want to have a burger with me, come on over. And some people came and you, you came and it was a ton of fun. So it's pretty cool. Well, and also, I mean, speaking of doing things in person, this was the first... Well, we're skipping. See, I'm, I am bad at introducing people. You're already getting me into the topic <laughs> no, no. here. I think it's because, yeah, we're two podcast hosts. Uh, two. <laughs> who's, who's, hosting, who's hosting who now? But okay, <laughs> yeah. first, as quickly okay, as you can, what? who are you and what do you do? <laughs> who are you? Um, my name is Dave, Dave Mays. Uh, I started as a magician primarily when I was a teenager. I did magic professionally for eight years. Uh, like legitimately, I was an illusionist. Um, I worked at like four different restaurants a week and I cut my teeth like doing that, but then also went on the road and worked with other magicians. I actually met Peter McKinnon on my 21st birthday in Vegas at Magic Live um, way before YouTube Peter McKinnon. It was like magic Peter McKinnon. Um, so that's a fun little factoid. I still haven't connected that, that link with him because I still haven't met him since I've become a YouTuber and since he has. Um, met my wife through magic. She was a hostess. And then I started doing video production, uh, around the time of the DSLR revolution, uh, started with weddings primarily. And then that transitioned to documentary films. I had a film, get a, a Vimeo staff pick, uh, when I was like in my early twenties that really launched my career and, uh, started working with, uh, production companies here in Nashville. I'm, I'm I live in Nashville, Tennessee. <clears throat> and then after doing the kind of director thing. Uh, I got kind of bored of working with clients and started a YouTube channel inspired by Casey Neistat. Um, and then by, by a stroke of, of luck, a company reached out to me and offered me a full-time job to host their channel, which was originally called Kinotika. I did that for about three and a half years and then um, was offered a job to host uh, a channel called Indie Mogul in Los Angeles did that for six months. That's the last time we spoke. I was kind of just getting started with that the last time we spoke. Um, and that was a total dream job. I had a ton of fun. Um, but after about six months, um, my wife and I decided that we wanted to move home back to Nashville um, due to really just personal reasons. It, it wasn't a place that I wanted to to live and raise my family. I have two boys, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. My parents live here in Nashville. So since then, 
life has been great. My marriage is better. My relationship with my kids is better. I feel like a healthier person. And uh, I'm just ready to get back in there. And starting now on my new channel, Dave Mays, just my my normal just name. I'm not working Which for Tantika anymore. I'm not doing Indie Mogul anymore. Just Dave Mays. <laughs> the same so. actual channel, I believe, right? So if people were subscribed yeah. to Kinotika, they are currently su- su- subscribed to Dave Mays. No need to... Yeah. <laughs> double subscribe if because then if they click it again then they'll unsubscribe and not realize it so don't do that that's true if you subscribe yeah, to Kino Tika, you already you already got it figured out exactly yeah i got lucky and reached out to the owners of kinotika and they uh gave me the brand they they gave me the company um and i changed the name to dave mays so all those older videos from three four years ago are there the 250 videos or whatever i did um <clears throat> which is great it, it gave me a nice head start my buddy Connor McCaskill, who worked with me during that whole time, is back with me again. We're shooting new stuff. I'm really excited. I'm and going to NAB like yourself the, this last week really just gave me a lot of motivation and excitement to kind of just get back in the game. And it's just as you know, it's just so much fun being around other creators and other people that are interested in all this nerdy stuff because in our normal day to day lives, we are pretty uh, goofy people i I literally went to the aquarium and went to uh like a thomas the tank engine thing with my family today carrying my c70 everywhere like using it as a home video camera and my wife was like i mean i I think you should that around if you've got one you know why would you want to look back your home videos and they're all shot on the iphone you'd be like but i had a good camera why did i I make my Kids' exactly. childhood look like a, a movie, so yeah, no, I think that's the right move. Um, well, I am well, making leads, it in. I'm using that leads uh, us. I'm, I'm back shooting into it in wide DR. I'm not shooting Canalog too, unfortunately. But oh, well, I mean, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it still looks great. But that leads us back into what I was about to say about this trip to Vegas. Is that this was one of the first like bigger events I've done since I've really been like deeper into YouTube. Um, but the the only time I'd met a lot of other YouTubers before was Camera Camp, which is pretty close to like pre the pre COVID. Like it was one of the last things that happened, and so that that was cool. I got to meet a lot of people for the first time there and make some friends. But um, anybody that wasn't there, I haven't met, and I didn't see any of those people any other time anywhere because after that, you know, nothing. Not much has happened for two years. So. Um, and also the, I mean, I, I was repeating this to everybody I saw it at NAB, but there was this feeling of that uh, as um, NAB was happening right as everything got canceled. Uh, you know, like we we and we had our books tick our tickets booked. We were going to Coachella, then NAB. None of those things happened. So now having gone back to it is sort of this full circle moment of. Like, I don't know, feeling like things are coming back to life a little bit. But yeah, also getting to meet people for the first time that I've since gotten to know on the internet and had on the podcast and actually got to hang out with in person a bunch. And I don't know, it, it was awesome. I, I took a bunch of selfies. They're on they're on Instagram and Twitter if anybody wants to see them. And um, I don't know. I mean, anybody that wasn't there, it's not that interesting to recount the, the stuff that you missed. So I would rather talk a bit more about like what what was good there and what implications are going to, are we going to have going down the road for the next year or two in terms of video production? Uh, also how it applies to photo production, just like what do we now know about tech that we didn't know before we showed up there? Um, I didn't pick a place to start. I didn't take notes. So do you have a, uh, a jumping off point you'd like to start with? 
I do, Tyler. I do. Oh, um, so, and by the way, so in the brought you on. <laughs> in the chat, in the chat, somebody mentioned that um, my audio is dropping out. So I apologize. I am on Wi-Fi. I have fiber and I've got 5G, so it should be good. But um, when Tyler edits the podcast, it should sound clean and, and perfect. So it'll um, it'll be perfect eventually. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it might be not super interesting to people, but I think there's something to talk about and something to take away from cloud recording that seemed to be, if I were to like summarize what I saw at NAB and what the announcements were, I feel like the future of this cloud backup and sync thing is, is really happening now. Um, I remember listening to an interview with the, uh, the creator of frame IO a couple of years ago on like a final cut podcast. And he was pitching this concept you know, three or four years ago, it's kind of like the CEO of Netflix basically saying like, yeah, the future is going to be streaming, but right now we have to mail out DVDs to get there. Whereas like with Frame.io four or five years ago, I think the CEO of the company, he saw the future and he's like, there's going to be a box on a camera or even an LTE chip built into the camera so that every time a DP is is operating the thing and, and hitting record, it's constantly being uploaded to the cloud so that an editor can literally be editing live as the shoot is happening. We're still not fully there yet, but we're pretty dang close now and it's starting to look pretty exciting. Canon released some firmware updates that enable this and then Blackmagic and Frame are both doing a lot of this stuff. So I think it's pretty cool. What do you think about it? Well, yeah. Did you try the, did you look at the Atomos booth and the way that they're doing it? Because that looks like if it works reliably, then it might be be here like there could be a workflow yeah. right now where you you're hitting record and it is going direct to the editor into an NLE but you started off by saying you don't know how interesting this will be to people and I would actually be really curious to know that like how many people is this important to because I only feel like it got important to me later in my career when I was able to have a remote editor like that's which I don't think that's extremely common how many people have somebody working on files that are out of reach of being able to get them to drive Obviously, there will be more of those people as it becomes more accessible and like the ability to just collaborate remotely. It'll happen because we can. So I don't know. Even if people don't realize they're interested, in it, it like if they don't have that interest currently, it's probably going to kick in pretty soon because it, it it's just going to let us do something we couldn't do before, right? Well, all of a sudden, there's completely new opportunities. So um, it from from what I was seeing, I wasn't able to like dive into the specifics of the workflow of any of them of like, you know, how, how am I really going to do this? For example, the, the Atomos thing. So it was Atomos Connect, I believe is the name of it. And it's a backpack that goes on a ninja. So a lot of people out there already have ninjas and are recording with them. And this is just a little add on to it for an extra $300 plug. I think you have to, well, they had it plugged into Ethernet, probably works over Wi-Fi too. But every time you hit record now, which it's saving the say ProRes files right into the hard drive connected to it, but it's also sending proxies wirelessly to Frame.io. Um, yeah, they're using Frame. Cause yeah, I was trying to remember, they're using Frame.io, Blackmagic is using Dropbox. So there's like different ways that all of these work. And then the missing piece in my head is that in the demonstration, they had the Frame.io plugging in, running in Final Cut and it was loading the proxies in like right into the project and then you could drop them in. But this is something I'm not aware of in Final Cut where you could start editing with the proxies like uh, 
first, never having put in original data. It, what I see in Final Cut is that it only you you always need to like import originals and then connect the proxy. So I don't know how it's working, but it made for a cool demo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know if I I think you're right on that, but the, the, I'm sure Apple will um, change that. I might we we both may be ignorant in that. There may be a proxy only workflow because I'm sure there's people that are handed a drive that's just full of proxies and people start editing, I'm sure. But um, anyways, I think it's interesting f mostly for the higher end because, I mean, think of a reality TV show like The Bachelor or like Survivor. If there often there's five cameramen, you know, filming constantly. I can't imagine the headache of editing and working on a, a project like that. The amount of producers that are required, the amount of transcriptions that are probably required of all that stuff. And then having to somehow craft a story out of all this crazy stuff. Um, so even if it's not editing, I feel like if for a reality TV show, if the footage is constantly being uploaded to the cloud, they can immediately start transcribing the, the footage so that the, the producers can start editing. And I, I would imagine in that kind of workflow, it's probably going to be great. Also, for I would assume for films, it'll be helpful too in a lot of ways. But often the way filmmaking is done in the traditional sense, like the director, once the shoot is finished, the director sits in a room with an editor. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if getting the footage earlier really necessarily helps. But I know that in, in a commercial context, it's definitely helpful when the client can be remote and observing what's happening with ha without having to be on set. Something I was talking about last week that is already here is that ability to, to do that kind of work with Capture One, which I have used on some recent shoots. Uh, just It's just called Capture One Live. And it's doing that same thing of like the as the computer uh, photos are being downloaded to the computer, it's generating proxies that go into a, a web app. And we, what we had was our client couldn't make it in, like she was out of town. So we just sent her a URL, super basic, and she can load it in any web browser, see the live files, like seconds after they're shot, they appear in front of her and she could rate them and, you know, either by number or color or whatever. And it was incredibly helpful just for that bit of awareness that she'd send a text to be like, oh, by the way, we need this combination of that product with that one. So being able to have that same sort of workflow in terms of video so that somebody can be, you know, just managing a shot list and, and checking things off as you go and having more awareness around anybody that is part of the set, whether they're physically or not. I, I can see a lot of applications for it. And I don't even know if it's going to be integrated into the ways that we're working right now, but we're about to find a lot of new ways for it. Then the way Blackmagic was doing it is quite different. That um, is really that editor focused version, which is like, you, as you create the project and you load everything in there, it's just all available to anyone. So they have some hardware solutions that can do this live. So if you buy one of those beautiful Blackmagic boxes, um, which range from like $300 up to like 20,000, I mean, you can spend as much as you want on it. Um, those are automatically generating the proxies and managing everything for you, but you can also do it manually. So you could just import everything and then like click the button and send it to somebody. But the result in the end, once all the footage is in there, is that you and your editors, I think up to 10 editors can be editing the same timeline at the same time. Um, I don't know how conflict management works with that, um, but I, I did have a chance to speak to uh, one of the like more senior people at Blackmagic for about half an hour and just kind of like go over 
why'd you do this and how does it work? And I mean, it's, it's incredibly compelling that idea of like group editing or, you know, a colorist is working on it at the same time as an edit is happening and it can manage those conflicts. If they get it right. I mean, it'd be pretty cool. That's really cool. Although I imagine as an editor myself, like if, if you're trying to edit something sort of live, you're kind of, what do you expect them to do? Like just kind of sit there with a cup of coffee and just like wait for stuff to show up before they can like, you know, if they edit a certain yeah. segment and then it's like, all right, well, I, nothing's uploaded. It's been about an hour. Like it, that sounds, that sounds like more of a waste of time. than Cause if, the, if there's something that's kind of like live coverage, you know, where it's same day yeah. turnaround, let's actually, it, a fun example would be a wedding where you are doing a same day turnaround. Mm-hmm. And if you have an editor nearby, and there is a Wi-Fi network and I don't know, it's going straight to them. You could have it at the end of the day. Yeah, totally. Well, I did that for a video coming up. So. Oh, well, <laughs> so <laughs> Not, there, you, you know, shot all about on the it. ZV one too. It'll be fun. Oh, nice. So there was the cloud. I'm, I think it's moment is about to come. Uh, you know, we're just kind of totally. getting to the beginning of it. I'm not really uh, going to embrace it until it's gotten a little bit further. I think this is the key reason why Adobe bought it because I think they are they're seeing into the future here and once this whole thing is cracked and we're right on the edge of it the precipice of it um, I think once this becomes a reality and it becomes part of the workflow this may change filmmaking and, and productions forever and by Adobe owning the whole platform uh, I would assume that you know they're going to make a lot of money off of it somehow so um Obviously, Blackmagic does their thing, as always, and they're not willing to work with anyone else. So, <laughs> but one one thing I was confused about was that, um, so Adobe had announced just before NAB that all Creative Cloud members now get free access to Frame.io. Sounds amazing. Like, that's really cool. Uh, and oh, I didn't I, know that. Yeah. I, I just found out going up to their booth. I hadn't even heard that. And it's true. I, I checked it. But I, what I couldn't figure out is that I was only able to use it when I would log in through Premiere. Like if I opened the Frame.io interface in Premiere, mm. log in with my same email as my Creative Cloud. It was like, great, here you go. You can do all this Frame.io stuff. But if I go to the website, it's still just showing me that I only have like a few projects and two terabytes available. Like I don't have the proper account that it says okay. I should. So Maybe they're forcing you to use I haven't quite figured out instead of... Final yeah, or that's whatever. what I'm a little worried about. And and reading the splash page, just kind of, you know, pitching it. Yeah, they don't clarify that. They don't say like, oh, you get the full frame IO, the full web interface or anything. like gotcha. that. Gotcha. I don't know. I, I got to figure that out still. But it's like the cinema 4D thing. It, like it comes with it, but it's not really the full one. And it's confusing and annoying. But yeah. Um, what do you think about resolve? Like you and I are final cut guys and I've been talking to a lot of people and at NAB, I talked to a couple of people and, and people who were on final cut and they're like, no dude, I'm on resolve and it's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I, that saying of like, you want to bet, you don't bet on the horse. You bet on, on the jock or the jockey, not the jock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, but if you're betting on sports, you're probably betting on jocks. That's pretty reliable. Uh. <laughs> but, uh, like if you were to think about each company in threes, let's obviously exclude Avid, but like Adobe has their own thing, but Premiere is just so clunky. Final Cut is great, but it, Apple is just distracted and has so many other things that they care about. And then Blackmagic is just like constantly updating things, making it better. 
just pushing the envelope in in all areas like what are your thoughts i know you've been using resolve a little bit yeah i mean i've been using resolve a lot for a while specifically for color so often it's that i'm just going into there and working with some recent footage and, and like generating LUTs that i then use in final cut um, there's very few projects i've been able to grade in resolve because the workflow it's not fast well, you no, know, of moving back and forth, it's just there's a lot of like wasted time in it. And for things like YouTube, it doesn't make any sense. You kind of have to be in a situation where there's real picture lock, like the edit is done and it's not changing. And that's not really how I edit. There's very often last minute requests. And um, so yeah, that's not really conducive to that style of workflow. So Resolve is still sort of this other thing for me. It's like a color playground. It's not an, ed it's not an NLE. And that's becoming a dumber way to work <laughs> gradually. Uh, like it, it, you know, I, I've talked about it a few times on the, on, on the podcast already, but about that, the, the color managed workflow, uh, when, when you do it properly in, in resolve really just sells you on, like, this is the way it should be. This is a hundred percent how log footage should be handled. We don't, we should not be thinking about trying to find a good transform let from a YouTuber that we like. We should be able to put it through a, a color managed pipeline with software that understands what you're looking at and then allows all of your adjustments uh, to be contextual to that log footage. So, you know, it would be like if you, you know, right now, the way that it is, say you're doing your color in um, either Final Cut or even Premiere, it's, it's when you have log footage, you're, you're using like kind of blunt instrument tools. Whereas like in, um, if you edit a photo in Lightroom or capture one, you drag the exposure slider. It looks like the exposure is going up and down as if you adjusted it on the camera, right? If you know, you know what it looks like if you increase or decrease the ISO. And it's not the same as grabbing one of the, the, the highlights or the gamma curves and like bringing those up that doesn't look the same as adjusting exposure because you end up like yeah. clipping highlights you end up changing the saturation when you're color managed in resolve it understands what exposure is and as you bring it up it appropriately compensates all the highlights shadows and saturation to feel accurate in the same way that a camera exposure change does um and the the only way to do that right now is with some a tool like um, that, that color managed workflow, uh, you know, there, there's some other attempts to do it, like some plugins, like, uh, film box in resolve or, uh, the other film one that is in all the platforms that, oh, film convert. Um, yeah. they have a little bit of it built in. Um, and then even for us too, us Canon shooters, um, it handles the raw really well for Canon stuff. Although yeah. I just, I don't, I never shoot raw. <laughs> so right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've it's been... nice when you have it. I, How do you, I, by I... the, we haven't talked. Yeah, I haven't talked about that. Are we? Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on the C70 RAW. Like, I had you on my show on the Golden Hour podcast, and we were kind I of like about it on here. Have you talked about it? No, yeah, I don't think I don't think I did. I because I just had a whole bunch of conversations at NAB, and I'm like, was any of this on the yeah. podcast? I don't think it was. Okay, so the thing that happened to me my... a couple times. I I told the <laughs> same thing to multiple people. I'm like, have I told you this already? And they're yeah. like, no. And I'm like, oh well. I've said this well, five times is. now, but yeah. <laughs> just listen to the podcast. You'll get it all. Um, okay. So the thing is, yeah, I've done, I've, I've done the tests in raw just enough for me to understand it. Um, and there's, I, I really like the way that it's implemented. It's amazing that it shoots to SD cards. That's incredible. And the fact that it's extremely compressed, I think is actually 
great. I, that it, that is much more useful than giant raw files that Canon has traditionally done. So now, I, I, I mean, for context, like it's, mm, I don't remember the fraction. It is a fraction of the size of the C200, which already was much better than certain other Canons like the R5, the raw files are enormous. And I mean, it, yeah, that's the best example. Actually, the R5 raw files are way bigger than they need to be. Um, and meanwhile, other brands like Blackmagic have been able to provide 10, 12K raw that is super compressed and very editable and looks amazing and you're not losing any image quality. So seeing Canon finally start implementing that kind of thing with C70 is great. What I found was that I didn't get the jump in image quality that I have seen elsewhere, like on the C200, for example, the difference in 8-bit and RAW was enormous. Like you really, you could save a lot more detail. But um, basically what you're able to save is saturation in the highlights. So if you're, as you're overexposing and you bring it down, you don't have more dynamic range. Like if it's clipped, it's still clipped, but there's more color information. So that's especially useful if your skies are, you know, those are what are almost clipping and that you can bring some of that blue back that you couldn't before skin tones. It gets less thin as it gets too bright. You can keep some of the richness in it, uh, but it's uh, not as big of a difference as I had anticipated. I thought it was going to be a little bit more. Yeah. I love the 10 bit on the, on the C70, the 422 10 bit. I'm, I switched completely to the HEVC mode too, just to save size. Cause I am rocking a, m1 max computer now so it just cuts through it no problem um it's just so convenient and tiny and easy so i don't know but we have our little basic youtuber lifestyle so <laughs> but, yeah no it's true did well did you have you shot with it like did you update the camera and everything i did i updated it um oh, okay. played around with it a little bit here in the studio just literally just this shot here and just played around with it a bit um the Canon app that they have, the raw app is just garbage. <laughs> and so I played around in that and then brought it into Final Cut. Um, I know you can bring it into Final Cut, but you don't get any of the raw stuff. So I need to, I don't even know how to use Resolve really at all. So um, I didn't try that because I don't know what I'm doing. You would still see some advantages in Final Cut. Effectively, it, it would be letting you work with 12-bit footage instead of 10-bit. So sure. that's great. So. I mean, that is a, it is a real improvement. Um, it, it it does offer you a little more flexibility, but it's it, as, raw matters when you're in an environment that, well, especially if you're going to do some like VFX. But more, most of all, if you are in something that's very uncontrolled and it's likely that you're going to make mistakes, um, mm. you know, like you 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 know that your white balance could end up being a thousand k off, and you're going to have to fix it. <laughs> then I'm happy when yeah. it's raw because like there's no punishment for it. Totally. Right? And then that can save you time during production because you don't have to get the white balance as accurate in the first place. So, sure. you know, that's the argument for for using it. Um, but in but R3D a lot of, is just so good. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, anything else is trash. <laughs> yeah. Red's done it so well for so long that, uh, you know, because uh, the, the, their files don't have to be very big to really offer a lot of mm -hmm. flexibility. You know, they look really good without being enormous. So, uh, okay, so basically we are kind of at that point with Canon now where we can, and kind of everyone, uh, maybe not everyone, Sony, I don't know what Sony RAW is like if you record to an external recorder, uh, but Blackmagic, Red, Canon. Panasonic. Panasonic RAW, but it's not internal. No, they do ProRes RAW. I think Sony does ProRes RAW too. Or, but they do, or are they Panasonic doing their own Sony does ProRes. Thing? 
just ProRes internal, but not ProRes raw internal. So oh, are you referring specifically to internal? I was talking about the well, Atomos solution. Yeah, so yeah. The, I just don't even, th- I mean, you're, you're technically right about that. I just, it's so inconvenient, the idea of me of <laughs> counting on your external recorder that like, okay, we have, we set up, we hired actors, we built a set, we have wardrobe, but if this cable comes loose, I'm not, I can't record anything. Like that isn't, that's not real to me. Like you are betting the farm on, uh, you know, a doomed, uh, cables break, cables come unplugged. Like there's a million reasons, do not trust cables. So um, I'm yeah, pretty sure raw to me is like, it's like a novelty feature. I'm pretty sure some of the early Alexas uh, to do raw, you did have to do it externally, but they were using SDI cables, which are way more robust. Right. So yes, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and in that case, it is <laughs> it is a different scenario. And I mean, you know, Alexa doesn't even need raw. <laughs> Alexa, no, it doesn't. So. There's plenty of movies that were shot in 1080p ProRes that look amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This episode is brought to you by Microsoft Lists. If you have anything to keep track of, like maybe running a YouTube channel, then Microsoft Lists has you covered. Are you looking for a new way to track and manage your work and life from start to finish? Well, Microsoft Lists is here to help you clear your brain space and get organized. And it all starts at lists.live.com. Microsoft kicked off a preview of the program to try lists with your Microsoft account. All the software is designed for small businesses and individual users, so you can start by creating and sharing your lists with your work colleagues, your partners, your teammates, your neighbors. You might want to create a list of books or movies or monthly meetings. You can track your home improvements, which I certainly will be doing. At lists.live.com, you can quickly start with ready-made templates using filters and views to visualize your information, which means you can have one list with many views. Then you can share your lists as links to get other people's thoughts and work together. You can do a lot with lists, either with the ready-made templates or just start from scratch. So you could keep track of event itineraries, or maybe if you have a big trip to Europe coming up, you can make notes about everything that you want to do or what you need to pack. You can collect receipts. There are so many different applications. I don't need to explain them to you because you know how powerful lists can be. So go and try the preview right now at no cost. Go to your browser and type in lists.live.com. That's lists.live.com. And you can sign up, sign in, and track what matters most. Check it out and let Microsoft know what you like and if you have any feature requests. So thanks to Microsoft for supporting the show. Back to NAB, just to like wrap that up with a bow. Um, Aperture freaking crushed it. Uh, I feel like, so I, uh, you know, just to put this out there, disclaimer, Ted is a very close friend of mine. I worked with him directly with Indie Mogul, you know, with, with Aperture. So all that, you know, disclaimer there. Um, I do have a bias because I am a friend of Ted's and a, a big fan of Aperture. That being said, I think even as b- being as objective as possible, nobody's really coming close to what they're doing. It's really exciting because they're actually taking like lighting technology and really pushing it to the next level and um, finally kind of tapping into the true like cinema level of things and, and starting to fill out their lineup outside of the prosumer uh, kind of affordable stuff, but still making it affordable compared to like a sky panel or the airy uh, options. So um, I know they're working with uh, some really incredible filmmakers um, and like they've officially cracked into Hollywood now, which is really cool to see aperture alongside <laughs> 
airy, like in terms of reputation in Hollywood. I don't really care personally. And I, I think a lot of YouTubers probably don't care. That's why we're YouTubers and not, you know, pursuing the Hollywood Hollywood career path. But um, it's exciting nonetheless. And it, it's it's pretty cool. And Ted has been at the helm of that and he's done a fabulous job. Um, so they've got some new tubes that are using some really intense LED technology. Like the, the pixels are like extremely small, I, I guess, apparently. Um, like it hasn't been done before, apparently. That's mm -hmm. what they said. Uh, and then the 600C, is that it? The C Pro? It's yeah, like we're a, miss, a really missing some letter there. C Pro sounds right. Yeah, it's like um, it's it's a 600 watt. What it's a very bright light that also does very bright and extremely accurate RGB uh, lighting. And Ted actually brought up a good point when he talked about it. He said that a lot of this technology has come from like just standard kind of hardware, like stage lighting and, and stuff like that. Nothing has been really specifically designed for filmmaking with high CRI levels with with RGB in particular. And so, I mean, that's why sky panels have been such a, a huge hit for so long because they're extremely accurate and, and very good at what they do. Um, so now this is kind of hitting above the weight of a sky panel now for like half the price. So um, pretty exciting stuff. And uh, I'm excited, you know, I'm anticipating more from Aperture as they continue to grow in the industry. Well, and as anybody tells me that has spent time testing the sky panels, they actually have a terrible CRI, like extremely low, lower than most oh, really? modern lights that we work with. And they're old Aperture has been outperforming. Yeah. Aperture has been outperforming them with everything since they started their RGB lineup. There's a just better mm. overall color rendering and, you know, Hollywood's slow to move. So they're not going to start replacing them anytime soon, but um, the actual performance of the modern RGB WW stuff coming from Aperture seems to act to be better, which is amazing. And at a much better price point and more, I don't know, more intuitive design. Like I, I really like the way that Aperture designs. So yeah, totally. there's a reason that they've got all this momentum and the, they're, you know, not after having dominated the YouTuber space are now really, you know, a serious presence on sets more and more so in a way that was challenging yeah. for them before. Um, but they absolutely are, are being taken seriously in the same way as, as others. Um, and they're, they're kind of one more thing too, is their new app. The, I think it's the Citus, um, DMX app. They're now working with every other like lighting company. So you can have oh, I didn't your see aperture that. lights. Yeah. You can have your aperture lights like sync to it, but then you can literally sync your, your sky panels and your Nan lights and like everything, like somehow, I guess they're reverse engineering that, or I don't know if it's an open standard, but they're basically just saying, Hey, you know what? Like just use our app and we'll work with whatever you got. So now you can control all your lights depending. It's not dependent on the light manufacturer. Crazy. Yeah, that's great. They have their own engineers uh, and developers in-house now, which is completely new from when I used to work there a year ago. They didn't have any app developers so that's only happened in the last year so that's pretty cool yeah I, I mean they've just really thought of things from like a pretty i feel like a lot of this vision had to have already been there like they just have this awareness of where they want to go um and and before moving away from the rgb thing to one more thing i want to i want to talk about more and more and i want to spend some time with is that rgb i was more skeptical about it until recently um, especially spending some more time with what was the name of the new panels that I just tested the F 
F22X. No, X is by color. So F22C is the one that is RGB. Um, but like whenever you can, getting the RGB version of anything is the right move because of being able to have like a good uh, green magenta compensation because being able to dial in to match the other lights around you is so incredibly helpful and just having bicolor isn't necessarily enough. So what I really want to start doing, again, this is one of those like, did I say it on the show or in a video or whatever? I want to start, someday I want to get like a good Sikonic spectrometer that has the, like tells you everything about the color that you're currently measuring and start matching my other sources all by dialing in XY color coordinates so that because, you know, outside the sun, sure, you've got sunlight, but what might actually be coming through the window isn't coming from the sun. It's bouncing off the lawn and coming up through the window. So there's probably a green shift or it's bouncing off the st- building across the street and it's blue and it's, you know, cooling it down or whatever. There's always something that is contaminating that daylight in an indoor situation or any situation, so, some level of shifting um, and being able to match exactly uh, is pretty amazing. It's something I want to experiment with myself. I just don't have, I don't have all the tools to do it yet, but I I want, that should be standard soon. Like that should start being where we all are moving towards in the pretty near future where like everything is, it's not this like, oh, I set my camera to the daylight setting. So I also set my light to daylight and now they should match, but they don't match. I mean, that happens all the time that they don't match and drives me crazy. So hopefully we're going to get there soon. Um, one thing I really liked at another booth. So uh, Nanlite did their bulbs to compete with, uh, the B7, I don't remember the ones from, from Aperture, but that's the one I have is, is, is Aperture. The Nanlite ones, what I really like is that they actually are shaped like bulbs. So if you see it somewhere in the frame, it looks a little bit more realistic. Uh-huh. That's one nice thing. Instead but of the even futuristic better, Aperture ones. <laughs> they had this yeah, the little B7 propeller. C. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's the name. I, I was going to say mm-hmm. C, but I'm like. Oh yeah, because it is RGB, isn't it? Anyway, okay, so the Nanlite ones ha- come with, it, it, this accessory is actually the most exciting part. It looks like a little propeller and it's just a circle with a suction cup on top. And you can twist it to allow different amounts of light in and out. The reason this is really helpful is the, the main reason that I use those light bulbs is to put it in a lamp that's behind me to have it controlled, right? Usually it's like you're going to, most regular tungsten bulbs are too bright for cinema because it's going to blow out compared to your key. But so you take this little hat for the light, you suction cup it onto the top and it blocks a lot of that light from coming up out of the top of the lamp, which is every, every time I put a, a bulb in a lamp, it's a problem because all, all the light is spilling up and hitting the wall beside it and the wall starts to clip you know, like, which is not what you're trying to do here at all, right? Like you just want this gentle glow from behind. So it lets you control exactly how much is coming out of that open top of the lamp. So super specific, but interesting. I just thought the Pavo, it, so like, I think they call it the Nanlite Pavo bulb 10 C. Is that, that it? That sounds right. That sounds right. Okay. But it was, cool. it was, it was interesting. They just had such a different approach from what Aperture did. Like, I'm glad they're not copying each other exactly. And that they're both willing to experiment. Cause another thing is like, they don't have batteries included. The Aperture it has a built-in battery. So if you just leave it plugged in for a while, then it's going to be able to run without any power with yeah. the Nanlite versions. You have to get an, a, another battery pack thing to make it go. So, you know, what's funny is I'm sitting here 
talking about Aperture, talking about Nanlite, all these great companies. And I just want to remind the listeners of the show that like some of those lights are expensive. You can still get by with cheap stuff because I'm looking around here and like off to my left is a, a young, young new light. It's like one of those little lightsaber looking things. Right. Um, I think Caleb Pike recommended that a couple of years ago. I'm still using that. I've got, you know, these little, um, you ever seen these, these little, uh, things that's like, what's it called from spiffy gear. They sent these to me. Spiffy gear. Spiffy gear. They're in, they're from Israel, but yeah, like they sink. So I've got two here and then two here and there's like a cable that routes to both of them. And as you can see, it's controlling both sets of them, which is kind of fun, but these aren't that expensive. So I I don't have any expensive stuff. Same um, with, and that's why Aperture's doing the cheaper line now, too, because you can get away with cheaper stuff, too. Yeah, they've been splitting it out to Amaran in a way that I actually find a little confusing from a brand perspective. Like how it seems like they want to split them more and more. And I'm a little like, is this called yeah. the Amaran blah, blah, blah light? But, yeah. um, but also, I yeah, it, I mean, I think it is. I think they want it to be yeah. a different brand because I think they're trying to keep Aperture into the high end cinema world, yes. you know. So that's fine. But so uh, what I, uh, yeah, also looking for cheap stuff. I mean, Godox has been there the whole time and are remarkably affordable and offer competitive options for, for pretty much all of it. But I mean, it's also just always amazing how good these prices are compared to what we had to pay just a couple of years ago. So like, you know, whatever light you couldn't afford last time, spend the same amount of money and you're going to get something better. So yeah, it's, it's not not a bad time to buy lighting. Much better than it used to be. Totally, um, it's not a bad time to buy anything. The freaking Macs are better than they've ever been. Like it's, I still get tickled w- with excitement how freaking good my laptop is now. It's like I could never imagine power in a laptop, and not only that, but a freaking XDR screen. Like it's so good. The whole thing is amazing. I. I can't like, and it's got an SD card slot. Oh well, gosh. so which, yeah, Why which one are you using? What, what model did you get? Like, what are the details? I have a, I have a, a 16 inch, uh, MacBook pro M one max. Um, it's just, you know, it's just, it, it is maxed it's out the, all the it's way. It's the exact so same as what I'm using right here. So, and it's silver yeah, no, too. It's like, it really does feel kind of life-changing in, in, in terms of like what you can get done mm. in a day and what the pain points are and, and the battery and life. Gonna, I've, I had a four hour, ba- I had a four hour flight home, you know, from Vegas and I used it the entire time editing the video that I posted this morning. And I think I had 70% when I, when I landed in Nashville, a four hour flight. Yeah, so good. It's insane, dude. <laughs> it's yeah, really no, amazing. I, I know that I'm a, a broken uh, squeaky wheel about this. Like I'm just gonna, I just keep talking about it. I can't shut up about how great these are, but like. Yeah, yeah, I feel like when good stuff comes along, it's good to stay excited about it for a while. We're so <laughs> yeah, I'm still you know excited. so much so much of tech is like is getting jaded and finding something to complain about, and it's mm-hmm. like you know what, phones are amazing, cameras are amazing, like all this tech is just so yes. good right now. One hundred percent, and it's it's still worth complain. The more I like something, the more I'm going to complain about what I think could be improved about it. And I don't think there's anything <laughs> wrong with that, but you can at the same time be grateful for how powerful it is and, and, you know, all, all of the things that you're able to do with it. So, uh, yes. yeah, I don't know. I, I try to keep some of that perspective. What else? Um, NAB to me at the end of the day was the people like, like we said earlier, like just hanging out and talking to people, like 
they kind of stopped releasing stuff at NAB a couple years ago, to be honest. I feel like trade shows, I feel like trade shows are sort of on their way out in a way, at least not how it was six years ago. Um, and that's okay. Like the internet allows us to, you know, receive a new product whenever the product's done. Like it, it doesn't have to be at a trade show. The reason, the only reason it was at trade shows is because that's when journalists would all show up and write about stuff in articles. But now with the internet, you know, talk about slow to catch up. Like these companies are now, oh, we could just send the camera to a bunch of creators and they'll make a review for free. Um, so it's just a different market now. And Sony just releases stuff whenever they feel like it, you know, whenever, whenever it's ready. Um, Canon seems to drag the feet a little bit, but they, they, they also release stuff. It seems whenever they're ready. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm okay with that. I think it's, it's fine. It doesn't, it makes NAB a little less exciting. And, and I think the justification for you, if you, if you want to go to NAB in the future, should, you should have the expectation that, you're not going to see something new. You're really going to hang out with like-minded people to meet other creators, to meet um, maybe even a future client. You know, I remember going to NAB seven, eight years ago and meeting people that ended up, it's like, oh, you live in Nashville? Cool. What do you do? Oh, you're a producer? Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm a DP. Like, I'd love to work with you. And I end up becoming friends with people like at NAB. So um, anyways. Well, Another thing about it that it provides for me at least is that there's not many work, there's not many times that I have the, uh, a chance to interact with other people that do the exact same thing as me because when we're at work, there's only one cinematographer on the set, you know, like there's, there's, I'm not hanging out with other people that do my job. So I'm not getting their input on how they do it or hearing what I, you know, could be, I mean, I, I still hear what I could be doing better from like the other people around me, but it's, it's really helpful to talk to just peers that have the same level of enthusiasm about very similar things. And all of a sudden it can like totally shift your perspective on like it's, it, it'll often just be some little tip that somebody slipped in a conversation of like, Oh, you're pre-rendering your X, Y, Z. And, and it sticks in your head and you're like, Oh wow. Like this, is a new way of doing my workflow. And so it's, um, it's, yeah, it's sometimes hard to pin down the thing that is most helpful about being there, but it, it's definitely something that comes out of the conversations. But speaking of Sony, you mentioned, um, well, you mentioned Sony there. I haven't tried it. I haven't watched any reviews, but I was just excited that they did announce that new 24 to 72 yes. because they didn't release it at NAB. They did it after it was after I thought it was, uh, yeah, around. I mean, uh, you know, but it, I didn't see it there or anything. So uh, no, I know, which is kind of a bummer. I would have loved to have seen it. They released it right after NAB was over a couple days ago. But um, it's lighter, it's smaller, it's sharper. It's got a, a the click and declick switch on it. It's got buttons on it. It's got an aperture ring. Um, I'm starting to realize, like, holy crap, Sony's making good stuff, and it and they keep making it, and they keep advancing. And they're actually listening to the users of it. They're adding features that we want um, with the exception of the, uh, you know, everybody's like, hey, Sony, when are you going to update the A7S and the FX3 with some of the things that are in the A7 IV, like the uh, the focus mode and the, what is it, the, um, the it turns off the focus breathing uh, compensation thing. Everybody seems to really love that feature. And it kind of makes sense for that to be on the a7s since the a7s is a cinema camera um but literally everybody i, can't, I think there was 
not not a single person in our little sphere of of creators that isn't using Sony now, except you and me, right? <laughs> like, um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It depends how broad you like draw the how sure. wide you draw the circle. And also, I don't always know what people are really using all the time, especially people that are reviewing cameras. Like, I'm not. I don't know what potato jet is really using, you know, like what's the, what is the <laughs> whole thing being shot on? Like it seems to, you know, change. And I do think he's primarily on Sony. I, I, yeah. I believe, but it's for good reason. Like it's small, it's lightweight. The Ibis isn't wobbly. Unlike Canon's Ibis. Um, yeah. You were complaining about that to me in your video. I am <laughs> never bothered by it. Like oh, I really? kind of know what it is. Like I, I look for it and I can find it, but if nobody yeah. tells me about it, I just don't, I, I never notice it. So, drives, but I know nobody else complains. Nuts. So yeah. Yeah. I, that's why I, I use my Olympus when I did, I still have it and still love my Olympus. And I'm kind of just considering buying the new Olympus. Cause I'm again, I, I'm talk about like being a solo guy here. Like nobody <laughs> uses Olympus, but I'm a huge fan of it. I like the menus. I like the, like they, they have a whole team of people that work on medical instruments and they're the ones who design the ergonomics of the camera, which I think is fascinating. So like, it's really comfortable to hold. It's like a, a small lightweight kind of system and their IBIS is insane, but it's micro four thirds and it's, you know, nowhere near as good in dynamic range and low light, obviously. But, um, I don't know. I, there's just something about it. I love using it to take pictures of my kids and just kind of use it as a tiny little camera. And I think I'm still probably going to just stick with that in my C70 because at the end of the day, the C70 and C-Log2 at ISO 800 using that DGO sensor, the only thing that comes close to it is the C300 Mark II or the C500. And the C300 has the same sensor in it. So obviously, uh, or not Mark II, what is it? The Mark, are we on the Mark III now? Seven. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You know, I don't remember which Mark, but, but no, it's, you it's know true. Same sensor. And I've, I've never had that experience with any of my other cameras that, um, it's just, it's just everything I shoot out of it looks right. Like I'm yeah. never, I'm never really screwing it up. As long as I mm. glance at the waveform and things are kind of in the middle. Yeah. It comes out great. And I can't say that for other cameras that I really like. So, I mean, I also use the R5. Um, it's, you know, my B camera. Yeah. I use it less for video. But I expose it wrong often where it's usually it's underexposed. That's kind of, so I'm trying to just like always bump it up now. But yeah. there, it's not it's not bulletproof in the same way. Like it's pretty easy to just kind of get it wrong if you're not keeping a close eye yeah. on it. And do you, that's, how, do you ever, that's how Sony's always were for me as well. Well... Again, so Armando, um, so Connor, <laughs> Armando Fiera used to, uh, Connor used to work for Armando and there was a day like on Sunday at NAB, I was, I told Connor, I was like, Hey, let's just take it easy first day. Like, I don't want to shoot anything. I flew it, you know, I, I paid for him to go and, um, you know, he's working for me, but Armando is like, Hey, can I steal him for the day? If you're not doing anything? I was like, yeah, sure. I don't care. And so Connor ended up like shooting for Armando that day, made some extra money. Um, but he shot it all in the FX3 and C Connor and I are full Canon. He's got an R5 and then I've got a C70. And I looked at the footage that Connor shot with Armando's FX3 and I was like, this looks like Canon now. Like the, the color science actually looks really good. It's definitely different, but it does not have that garbagey kind of like, 
Sony zombified look that it used to have. I mean, I think what really what really mattered was getting out of the 8-bit era. That was, you know, yes. it was dark times. When I go back and I watch anything <laughs> I was shooting in 8-bit, I'm just like, none of this looks good. Like the colors <laughs> Except the are C300 always... original <laughs> or the, uh, the oh, C100 oh, original was pretty good. <laughs> I didn't have it. But yeah, I know, I know other people can make it work for them. But um, and, you know, it's same for Sony now, too, of that, like, you know, I don't notice. I was just admitting, like, I don't know what people are shooting on because you see the footage and it's like, oh, that looks great. That also looks great. Oh, I mean, it's how yes. they shoot it. You know, it, it all looks really, great. Yeah. And in that point of having something really visibly different that there there was before, I think when mm-hmm. we were in the 8-bit era, which was long. I mean, we just got out of it, it feels like still. But yeah, the, you, you had less flexibility later and you were relying a bit more on what your camera's colors actually were and that's what you got and yeah if you know and so that's why the sony stuff looked weird and that's why i was like a shooting hlg to try to get more dynamic range out of it because s log 2 yeah, yeah, looked yeah. terrible and 8 bit and blah, blah blah well so here's the conversation that i had that kind of made my brain not explode but kind of be like oh shoot yeah was with a guy named ken Bolito. are you familiar with ken he's austin evans uh shooter austin oh evans yeah yeah is a yeah great yeah, creator and, and Ken is amazing. He's on Twitter. Um, he, I've met him at a couple events and like that for some reason, like we just really clicked this time. We had a great conversation. Um, oh, I didn't see him. Somebody tell Ken we're talking about him on the podcast. So he listens <laughs> Yeah, I, just because I'd love to talk to Ken someday. I wish I'd met him. He said they're fully on it, man. They, they got like six or something uh, FX threes or and a seven S's. And he literally uses the 16 to 35 with the FX three handheld. And they love that handheld aesthetic. Like they used to have full cinema rigs with the FX seven, I believe with like cinema zooms and everything. And they're fully handheld now. And he said something that I really, really love. And I want to take, um, forward with my content. And he said, I don't view myself as a shooter filming for Austin Evans. I view myself as talent and the footage that I'm capturing is a POV of what I'm seeing. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. And that is why YouTube is great. Mm -hmm. That's why YouTube is so great. And that's what makes YouTube different than um, your traditional television show is that there is this, like, if you think about like Dobrik and what he did with his vlogs, like however you feel about him now with all the garbage that he's been going through. But like, if you just look at what he did as a filmmaker, like he was basically taking the TV show Friends but through a POV of, of what he was seeing. And I think that is kind of the future of our content and the future of uh, YouTube in general. And that's what makes it different. And so Ken, like he's always got a lav on whenever he's filming. So that way he can have interactions with Austin and it's a different approach than what, like, you know, obviously another tech YouTuber who's very successful Marquez Brownlee does. I mean, to him, it's, it it is a red on a tripod, you know, so that that's a completely different and a robot, you know, (laughs) but, um, I personally love that little touch that, that Ken mentioned about like everything that he shoots is a POV. He is talent on the, on the show and it's a POV of his image or of what he's seeing. And by having it be small and lightweight and super portable with reliable IBIS, you know, the, the Sony IBIS with the active stabilization is really good. Now you don't see any wobble. It's perfectly smooth. It looks like a shoulder cam. Um, you know, I love that. And the autofocus is so reliable now that you can just trust it. So, 
Um, yeah, so I loved the idea of Connor just having a small, teeny tiny little camera with like a, you know, this new 24 to 70 G Master, which seems to be perfect. Um, just him holding that and that's it. Like the simplicity of that. Whereas now I want to use my C70 because it has a better image than the R5. But in order to rig that up, he kind of needs an easy rig to hold it all day. So um, well, you could do shoulder mount as well or monopod, depending on yeah you know, what the style is. And, you know, I, like you're saying, I do, I do love the way that Ken does that. But it's also great to have that differentiation between channels, too, where, like, you know, somebody's sure. got this style and this taste and, like, uh, jumping back and forth. But, yeah, what, what you're saying about Sony, that's probably what I miss the most uh, living in the Canon world is that Sony really has emphasized portability in a lot of ways um you know just having a lot more compact lenses uh, where the equivalent in the canon world is giant um yeah even doing like even doing photography jobs where i'm not vlogging and holding something in front of my face all day um just having it in my bag because like right now i'm packing for a big trip we're going to be in europe for three weeks and oh cool man can't bring that much luggage i gotta pack as little as i can and i'm really you know every inch of that bag i'm thinking about so (laughs) i don't know i i won't be able to do it in time for this but i really want i i I keep bringing this up in podcast lately too i really want to spend some time with fuji for stills um yes uh, on the last episode uh simber yeah, totally. So Simbrash on the last episode, he was talking about some of the Fuji setups that he has um, for his New York Times work. And even the, the kit lens, which is 24 equivalent to 24 to 70 and 2.8 to 4, like variable aperture, which is mm-hmm. usually like deal breaker for me. I'm not going to touch a variable, variable aperture lens or a kit lens, but it's super small. It's way smaller than the Sony even. F4 isn't that bad compared to like often variable apertures go to 5.6, which is brutal but yeah i don't know he's shown me some samples that he took with him like these look great like there's this is doesn't seem to be a lens that gets in the way and uh it'd be a lot smaller than the r5 canon 24 to 70 that i carry around with me right now um so. but it's just all but it is all the other things too right like the handling it's the autofocus like fuji's autofocus is nowhere near as advanced as sony and canon so well, um, I would only use it as a secondary camera. I'm not, I'm, gotcha. you know, even yeah. if you see a thumbnail that says I'm going to switch, that's just clickbait. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to switch. I mean, Canon is my, for like production stuff for jobs. Like the R5 is the best stills camera and the C70 yeah. is the, the video camera that fits best for me. So it would more be about that. You know, there's a lot of stuff we do where we're like kind of on the go. And a smaller camera would have a huge advantage. So that's that's what did, I'm really thinking about it for. So, did you watch my latest video? What do you think about I it? I did. Uh, you like well, it? yeah, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So let's let's explain it for everybody too. For anybody that missed it, is they went around NAB. I'm trying something new. I I feel like our niche really needs to jump over into what's happening in other niches. And I was thinking I needed to hop over to something else, but I feel like I found something that's sort of there i'm still gonna figure it out but just trying to have fun with it so um basically i went around nab and just asked people questions for money and it was like you know i had i had a stack of 20s in my pocket and it was just like you know what was the first dslr that shot hd video 
Which was a trick question because the Nikon D90 is actually oh, the answer. Oh, you just gave but... it away. Otherwise, people would have to watch the video to find out. <laughs> I could, I, I, I would have got it right because I didn't know D90. I did think it was a Nikon and I knew it wouldn't be the 5D because I knew it would be a trick. <laughs> but I, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, exactly. have got the answer right. But it was a ton of fun. It was kind of a last minute idea and uh, it dressed up as Frono's photo and it was a ton of fun. So, <laughs> I mean, too bad he wasn't there, but. I know. I was hoping you would be. Um, I still haven't, I haven't met him, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I want to get feedback from as many people as possible because I've been trying to figure out how to blend comedy and entertainment into our niche. And I've, I feel like I've kind of failed in a lot of ways, but um, so I'm still trying to figure that out. So yeah, I, I know. know. I think it, I think it's great. I think it like, there's, there's definitely, there's so much room for more and more stuff like whenever people feel like they might want to get into youtube but a, a genre is saturated it's like you know when i search for things so often i'm like oh i'm just getting the same results every time and there's only a limited information about this specific topic that i want to know more about there is always so much room for most things um so yeah i mean i definitely think you're still able to take on a whole different angle to the whole camera world and having it be fun is absolutely a good idea. Um, I mean, yeah, like I, I, I think that the, the only, the only ver thing I've seen similar to it, it, wait, I can't think of his name. The guy, the other, the guy that does the like parody channels where he makes fun of everybody else's uh, camera conspiracies. Yes. Camera conspiracies, not the same, <laughs> but like, that's the closest to like, it's like yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. like more comedy than information. Um, yeah, but, totally. You know, well, I was, uh, but yeah, I was no, trying I, to, yeah, I think it's great. Uh, by, by it being about also Kai. real things. Oh, Kai, yeah, yeah. Kai, Gene. I, I got to talk to Gene Potato Jet for the first time, nice. really, on this trip. I've known him, we've kind of said hi at conferences, but I've never actually had a conversation with him. And uh, I'm just really excited for him because I think he also has a lot of potential in this Hollywood thing with the Michael Bay Universal thing. Like, I think that's pretty exciting. So we'll see. We'll see like if he can crack into that. I feel like one of the filmmaker YouTubers would eventually. And it, it kind of gives me seeing him crack in finally. And like he, he told me that it's performing better than any other video that Universal has ever done on their TikTok account. I think it's up to like 10 million views now. And um, and they're just like really shocked, really impressed uh, with all of his analytics and so I think they're pro I would imagine they're going to give him more opportunities, but s seeing that he's now like a YouTuber has cracked into Hollywood interviewing Michael Bay, like, I feel like, uh, it just shows that we're still in the infancy stages of this. And like, it's taken this many years for a YouTuber to kind of get to that level. Um, but also in my Bay on my podcast, yes, you should, <laughs> dude. You should seriously. You should pitch them. Um, I'll, I'll, you can connect us. Yeah, I just think like it's just refreshing to. I, I don't know. It's just it started to click for me these last couple of months, and I've got three videos that I've shot now that um, Connor and I are editing. I'm just taking a completely different approach, and I'm just taking what Mr. Beast says to do, um, which is you know spend a month on one video and just focus on making one as good as possible, which typically it would mean, well, I need to make money. So if it fails, then I don't make any money. But, um, I've entered into a partnership with Soundstripe, uh, 
which I think you met some of those guys and they're here in Nashville, great company. Um, and so that's allowing me to afford the ability to experiment a little bit. So, um, I'm just real excited. Like I'm, I'm kind of, my goal is to post two a month instead of like five or six, you know, <laughs> five, five or six is insane. I mean, I try to post two a month and that is still a struggle for me. So yeah, yeah no, you know, I, I, I have a lot of <laughs> maybe on your channel, but you do the podcast, you work with Anya, you do all sorts of commercial right, stuff. Yeah, like yeah. you're doing more than just two videos a month. So. Sure. I, I try to stay busy, but I mean, I do the podcast so I can have a quick thing. It's like, so I can mm. keep things coming out, um, that take a lot less time. Well, and cause I like podcasts more than YouTube videos, but that's just, uh, <laughs> that's just my personal taste. Um, I just think, um, I think there's a way to crack into, sort of what corridor has done and the mm -hmm. fact that like i ran into ren and asked him to be in the video and he said yes totally. like, was, that was just awesome. tickled me but so, um because i'm such meeting, a huge fan i meet, meeting anyways. ren was like the my fanboy moment like that was the, that was the totally. time that i was like Same. i had butterflies in my stomach i was like oh, it's ren that's really cool and it's he's true. so nice like oh my gosh exactly... so genuine yeah and i think what they've done with the VFX artist react and with corridor crew really proves kind of the, it proves that there is kind of a more general audience interested in filmmaking. So completely. Yeah. Well, and look at how long their evolution was. Like if you're ever feeling stressed out about your, like, I still haven't cracked it and I've been doing this for X years. It's like, how many years were they doing it? And most people are just discovering them now. Like every, they're still getting their new biggest videos all the time. And um, you know, a lot of people were not aware of them for the first 10 years. I mean, they've been doing this for more than 10 years. I, I believe the actual corridor channel goes back to and massively evolved over that time. Like corridor crew really was a straightforward vlog for a saint for a long time where it would just be like, Oh, here's where, here's what we're doing today. This is just, you know, we're just screwing around making jokes, uh, playing pranks on each other. And now they evolved it into this thing where it is both entertainment and information. And obviously it's completely blown up. So finding that balance, it's like, I don't know, keep experimenting and keep finding new things. I, I don't think you should feel bad about um, trying, trying to do something new, something you haven't seen before. Thanks dude. Yeah. I I'm, I'm working hard over here and just trying to figure it out. It's, it's hard to do it and make it not cringy <clears throat> because we have a 25 to 35 year old majority male audience. So, um, and then the second skew to that is 35 to 45 year old male audience. <laughs> so, um, I'm trying to find that balance of like being professional and like mature enough for the, like that age demographic to not cringe at it. But then also you got to take into account that there is going to be a whole wave of filmmakers that are just now getting started that are watching Mr. Beast. Like, so there is going to be a whole new wave of creators over the next decade that never even watched Indie Mogul. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the way I hear it said is every day there's somebody born that's never seen the Flintstones. Like the, the, the next generation always doesn't have the context that the last generation had coming into this world. So um, it's fine to like, now's the time to reestablish a new one. Right. Um, so uh, and, and uh, there are trends that I also like about where YouTube's been going. Like, I feel like it has gotten, well, that that's a hundred percent part of it, but also that it's gotten away from um, clickbait in a lot of ways. Like there, it was, th there's still a joke going around about, you know, that every video needs to be titled, like you won't believe what happens when, 
but that just isn't really the key to success anymore. Like that's not what the big videos are. And I don't see them on my feed nearly as much. There's a few that still seem to keep working. Like I'm sorry, or I quit or I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, there's, there's still a few like I'm you can pull out cameras. In, in, yeah. Yeah. In an emergency, but, uh, I definitely think there's been less of it. Um, there's a little bit more of a trend towards clarity. Like this is what the video is about. This is what you're going to get if you watch the video. Um, and I like, I really appreciate that. I'm trying to incorporate more personal, uh, aspects as well. So, uh, and Connor and I are actually doing something. It's just, it's, it's just weird. Like I, when I was a director, I would sit down and write, you know, a treatment for a music video or, a commercial project and actually script it and do like an act one, act two, act three kind of story structure. And I've never done that for a YouTube video before really. And so now I'm doing that. I'm actually, we're before we shoot it, it's like, okay, here's the intro. Here's the, here's the middle. Here's the outro. Here's some things that we can do to cause a conflict, uh, in the middle, you know, um, I'm not going to fake it, but I'm going to set myself up for failure so that when it happens, I'm sort of surprised, but not really. But yeah, then yeah. I actually have the stress well, of that surprise. Corder has talked a bit about that, um, especially talked about it on the podcast, showing like just how they do it in the videos. And like good examples are there'll be they'll have challenges where it's like, all right, we need to get the the best render, and whoever wins gets a candy bar, and everybody acts like they're excited about a candy bar, and the viewer knows you don't give a shit. Like it doesn't matter <laughs> that everyone knows that this is. Yeah. that that it's like kind of fake but it's like it just there's stakes it's, and they like, become real a a wink. you know there's yeah, kind of a winky totally. face it, to it it yeah. works yeah and and you know even that you were giving away 20 bucks in the in the video it's like you know 20 bucks it's real money but it's not mm. mr beast like it's like this good like balance yeah. of like the person's like they're excited to get it but they don't feel like they're yeah. I don't know, devastated if they get the answer <laughs> well yeah i uh I was going to just do dollar bills, which was kind of even more. It was almost like a meme of the Mr. Beast thing like for $1, but the ATM yeah. only gave out 20s. So I was like, oh, crap, I guess I'm doing 20s. <laughs> oh, and, shit. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but I noticed like there was a bit of a perk up with the 20. Like $20 is significantly more than a dollar in people's it's minds because you can, you can buy a t-shirt for $20, you know? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I notice, and and that gives me a performance that I'm able to like, and then with the, with the Canon, the Canon reps, I was like, will you oh, talk to me for $20? Away. And then I knew I had a stack of twenties in my pocket up to a hundred. And I was like, screw it. I'll just say it. Like, will you talk to me for $100? And he was like, no. And I was like, man, these guys, like those reps are another reason why I freaking yeah, like want to leave Canon. Cause he's the company is so stuck up. It's ridiculous. So I, I mean, I can't say anything towards that cause I never talked to them. So I don't know if they're stuck up or not. Cause I don't, I don't talk to anybody there. They'll get the guy at the booth I talked to is friendly, but the, the, what I will say about Sony is like, they're really great with their community. Like they are awesome at communication and responsiveness. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think that's been part of why there's been a lot of people switching to them as well as this feeling of, that they will have more support, you know, that they're, they're going to be listened to and they're going to be, um, so, you know, kind of like the, the, there's a bit more of an understanding. Whereas with Canon, it's like a bit of a cold shoulder. So <laughs> it's just like, take what we're giving you and be happy about it. And by the, like 
overall, I am actually happy. Like even with all that being said, everything that I mentioned about Sony, um, the tweets that I've been posting, like getting people's feedback, like at the end of the day, the image I'm getting out of this thing is so good. The built-in ND is great. The size, the form factor, I really like it. Um, I'm hoping that there's a rumor that there's going to be an APS-C RF body this year, there the R7. should have been a long time ago. <laughs> so if that's the case, then it would be wonderful if they made a couple of APS-C RF lenses, which then now I could have like a native, maybe yeah. 24 to 70 equivalent, which would be cool. That'd but, be really cool. And it could be smaller. Exactly. Are you, li- are you listening, Canon? <laughs> Don't make it big, please. Well, I'm just Use- worried that they're going to do like a crappy kit lens and that's it. Like an 18 yeah. to 135, 3.5 yeah, to 5.6. Yeah. I mean, I want them to be like Fuji in the smaller space. Like Fuji makes these smaller APS-C lenses. They're a little more yeah. affordable and they're just as good. They're not, you're not compromising quality, you know, and same with, some of the Sonys, not all of them, but you know, some well, of the Sony, smaller Sonys are great. Yeah, Sony just made that wonderful little. Uh, I think it's an eighteen to fifty-five two eight or something like that. Like they they are putting, they're still putting money into the APS-C, you know, system. Yeah. Anyways, it's it's fine. Oh, it's whatever. Well, I have another before we're before we're done. I just need to yeah. touch on virtual production because that was like the biggest change in the universe yeah. that doesn't necessarily apply to us today, but like. I just feel like I'm excited about it. If we don't talk about it this year, I'd look back on this episode and be like, wait a minute, we didn't talk about virtual production. I mean, so uh, did, did you get a chance to check out like the view booth or Mm -hmm. their party or anything? Yeah. I, I, you know, as you saw in the video, I did ride the little motorcycle. So I got to experience that. You really got to try it out. I didn't get on uh, the motorcycle, but it looked awesome. Yeah. And then I I talked to the guys um, who are running it, who actually work there and I got to hear what they're doing, what they're up to. Um, there's actually a competitive or there's a competing company here in Nashville. Um, in fact, View is actually, they just built a studio here, which is amazing. Um, so they're here in Nashville and then their competing company, I'm friends with the owner and that's actually the sticker right here. Um, the So I've I've been able to experience a volume like and in, in, in see the software with the, um, with Unreal Engine and everything. And it really is quite amazing. I was all like, basically Unreal is a gaming engine and they're using it for this VR stuff. And I didn't realize this, but like the background on these screens is actually just a rendered like game basically. And so it's actually a living, breathing 3D model with even like AI characters walking around. And so he was mentioning how during there's this like motorcycle setup at NAB where you sit on the motorcycle and the camera like pans around you and it looks like you're in a futuristic Tron kind of city. And he said that it's actually different every, like he just has a camera, a virtual camera that goes through a certain path, but the, the 3d environment is actually a living, breathing game. So, um, you know, sometimes he would see somebody walking, across the the lens that wasn't there previously or like he said there was like a bug in it and he saw like a car just flipping in outer space just like (laughs) some sort of weird bug with the software so i didn't even realize that so i think that's amazing and that means that you really could do like live streaming with this i could see twitch gamers like going crazy with this kind of thing where you really are actually putting yourself in a game but it's also a film and it's like really well shot. And I don't know. 
it's just it, just like the cloud um you know frame io stuff this again is like cutting edge of filmmaking and we still don't even know what's possible with this but the lighting with it looks so good because now we're not using a green screen anymore we're actually using a real background with you know the, the actual studios have screens on the sides and on top of you and even in front of you so the environment that you're in virtually is lighting you so you can have natural fall off on the corners and on the backs and like obviously if you've been following this technology um the mandalorian you know show kind of really popularized it in the mainstream it's the and showcase it's, for it it's just been and it's still getting better like you know the, that's old technology well, now so what i came away really wondering about is how are we going to get this to a more consumer level because like it's it's cool that Disney spent a hundred million on their studio, but I'm not going to get access to that. And I know none of this is like coming to mainstream anytime soon. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be years, but at least to a point of like, you know, where every city has a bunch of these, um, you know, I walked away thinking like, well, how much would it be to build? Like how big of a loan could I take out? Could I build one of these? And <laughs> I think we're my, talking like my, a million dollars for a big one, but well, yeah, yeah. For a big one but how much for a not big one? So I, I, <laughs> I actually couldn't really find a clear answer. There's, there are some kits that are, um, and if anybody has the clear answer, let me know. Cause you know, I, I could definitely stand to be corrected, but the PC hardware side, including, uh, the required tracking gear, I saw that there's packages for starting about 10,000 for that. So that kind of handles your unreal and matching it with your camera movement. doesn't give you anything to move the camera or a camera or screens in the background, which are kind of important. That's what, and that's what it was really missing from being able to figure out like how much would this really cost is like, how do you get a TV that big? Cause you could just go buy an 80 inch TV and it would actually work with that. You can do it with TV screens, but mm -hmm. the amount of movement you have is pretty limited. So YouTubers sure. would actually be able to do that kind of stuff like relatively simply, but it wouldn't be that interesting if, I mean, you might as well just play a video behind you. Um, so <laughs> to get, you know, something that has some, some space big enough to like build a set, I have no idea. I could not find clear answers to, to what that, I know what you would yeah. buy, like they're built out into panels that are, you know, maybe like two or three feet by like square and you stack them together and they become mm. one kind of seamless big thing. I guess, but um, I guess you could do it with yeah. a rear projector, right? Like you could probably get away with so that, it with like a decent rear projection. So right? I guess that's been around for a while. That's how I think Oblivion was done. Uh, the Tom yeah. Cruise movie from a little while back, which looked great. I mean, it was really nice, but it's, um, and, and does seem much simpler. So maybe that is like the budget way, but then you don't get that lighting, right? Cause the light's not, it's not really emanating heavily in yeah, the same way. Yeah. It's, it, it's a bit different. Um, and, uh, but I don't know, maybe there's, but, and I also wonder, it seems like, well, there's gotta be a reason that we didn't see rear projection versions everywhere at NAB. Like that, that's not why that's not what's being built. So I, I wonder if there's a reason anyway, gotcha. if anybody wants to tell me how much it costs to build that, I'd love to find out. Well, you can definitely do it with a green screen and put a tracker on your camera and basically record live, you know, motion tracked 3d green screen. But obviously, you know, it's not a volume like that. You're not getting the light fall off, which is really the trick. Um, yeah. And well, yeah, and I think full virtual uh, production, I've, I've had like Matt Workman's been on the podcast a couple times before, but he's like the one to, to follow. So just follow him on Instagram because he's just constantly posting what he's doing. But um, yeah, he's just built a, a green screen studio in his basement and he's bought like the body motion trackers and hand tra every bit of tracking you could hope for. 
and he can just fully act out those scenes that are then done by uh, Avatar using, um, you know, pre-built software that he's just kind of tweaking and modifying. And just gives me chills, man. My uh, when I was a kid, like this is this is such a dream, isn't it? That we do this for our job, isn't it? Crazy. Like I don't remember. I don't know about you, but when I was a when I was a young boy, you know, I guess is 13 a boy, I guess, you know, 13 a is younger really boy than we are now. <laughs> yeah. Our wives would definitely call us <laughs> big boys. Right. Um, <laughs> so at least that's what my wife calls me. <laughs> I'll start calling you that too. Um, but no, like there was this show on AMC um, that was like a behind the scenes. And I remember seeing how they made Titanic. You know, that's how that shows you my age, right? Like that was new at the time. And it was just so fascinating. And then obviously Star Wars and um, when DVDs started becoming a thing and you could buy the bonus discs. And I don't know about you, but I was such a Lord of the Rings fan. I bought, you know, yeah. my dad and I the, bought those behind those the scenes ex- were significant. Oh my gosh. It was really significant because that was the first time I think they used AI to develop um, 3D creatures. I think that was one of the big things that ILM did for that film. They basically just created a full like robot army of orcs and, you know, all these things. So they had their own kind of their own mind, um, a mind of their own when it came to fighting each other, which I thought was kind of cool. But yeah, all that stuff growing up, like I just dreamed about it. And now we get to like, essentially talk about it and experience it firsthand. And like, that's when people, somebody asked me at AB, like, so do you want to make films? Like, are you, do you want to be a filmmaker? I'm like, no, not at all. Like, I actually love being kind of a host talking about it. Like I kind of want to just talk to the experts and learn from them and, and make it entertaining in its own way. But like, I went straight to those bonus features on DVDs and I still feel like I'm doing that now on YouTube, just kind of talking about the bonus features, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're like, I want, I want to host the extra DVD. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, exactly. I, I absolutely love this. And I think it's a loss that we don't have them in the same way anymore. It really is. I think maybe yeah. the best balance that, the, that I am envious of is the balance that Corridor has struck, where they are making these short films, applying yeah. the techniques that they're talking about and learning, and then also doing these quicker videos where they're just talking about it then they go back and they like make something more complete and i just think that like that's really fun but that takes yeah resources right like it's helpful that they started as a team and they've kind of come up together and they can always rely on each other they they have that infrastructure built up at this point so that they can do more that it's challenging for all of us individuals to just jump into something like that but it's true but I've seen a few uh, a few YouTubers mention that they're going to work on some longer format stuff coming up. I know uh, Maddie Hapoya was saying that as well. So nice. Do you ever like connect with all the Canadian creators and stuff? Like, I know you're in a different area. Not in person. But, like the DP Review t- TV guys are local, and the Camera Store TV Jordan, as well. I mean, they're around here. But uh, everyone else, almost everyone else, is East Coast. So I haven't gotcha. seen most of them in person ever. I met uh, <laughs> Jesse Driftwood first because he came by an event like right when I was like getting into YouTube, and mm-hmm. then the pandemic happened. I'd see anybody. So uh, yeah, no, I haven't met most of them in person. What's what's kind of I know we're 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 at the close here of this show, and I, I just I'm curious like for you like, and I'm sure a lot of the the viewers that are watching this right now would agree. 
like I look to you as like one of the top dogs in our in our field and I freaking love every video you make that your storytelling your delivery the way you edit the way you shoot is just top notch I aspire to be Tyler Stallman to be honest um <laughs> what is your like ultimate goal here with with your channel like have you had a sense of clarity do you feel like you're still experimenting as well like what what's kind of your current um yeah, North star, if you I will. don't have <laughs> I don't have clarity on it. I've it, it's definitely been evolving, and I think I would be doing better if I had that target in mind. Um, you know, it's so often just driven by what I'm into at that moment, which is not good for the channel. Like, it's not ideal to be like I'm really into color grading right now, so I'm going to just be watching DaVinci tutorials all the time and try to find a way to fit that in. But that's so often what it is. It's like it's just driven by what I'm interested in, and I I know that doesn't. That's that's well, not ideal because I mean, other people it, aren't man. on the same <laughs> other people aren't on the same path at the same time. So, uh, well, but I'm interested you know, in I, what you're interested I, in, to be honest. So, well, yeah, we definitely seem to have a lot of overlap with that, and that's always been my philosophy. It's like, look, if I'm into this, somebody else is going to be into it too, and hopefully, we have enough in common that you'll enjoy multiple videos. So, I don't know. That's that's my whole theory, which is not very advanced, but um, but great time to say what else have you been doing and where can people watch it? And where are all the best places for people to follow you, Dave? Yeah. Just Dave Mays on YouTube. Um, formerly the Kinotika channel, uh, Connor and I, like I said, are working hard there. Um, that are taught in, uh, this book, the YouTube formula, He's reaching, which I highly recommend. Oh, there's a formula. Yeah. Have you read this book? Tyler? Tell me there's a formula. No, I haven't read it. I don't read books. I don't read uh, books either, but they just no, released no, no. an I mean, audio book this week. So this is written oh, by a guy named Daryl. Yeah, this is written by a guy named yeah, Daryl like, I know who that guy is. Yeah, he is kind of the like ultimate YouTube educator, um, and he uh, works with Mr. Beast and a lot of huge creators and has billions of views under his belt. Um, so he definitely knows his stuff, and like I feel like the review space is it serves a, a need, and I feel like I benefited from that early on. Basically it's, you know, this is the new blah, blah, blah. It does X, Y, Z and da, 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 which is great. That serves its own need. And I love doing that still because I'm passionate about gear and stuff and I want to educate and kind of input my own thoughts and my own opinions. But that isn't necessarily what is in this book and what is currently like blowing up on YouTube. I think again, like we've brought up Corridor, multiple times because I feel like they're really one of the few um, teams that are doing it right in our niche. Uh, Parker Wallbuck is also experimenting and seem, seeing to have seemingly having some great success as well with his pro versus amateur series. Um, basically gamifying things and, and making things entertaining and, and just having fun with it. You know, it's YouTube maybe 3.0, 4.0. I don't know what point oh we're on, but it seems like right now, YouTube really is swallowing up television. And so therefore, you know, proper storytelling and good game show ideas are seemingly working well on YouTube at the moment. Um, so I love that. It turns out I was a magician for eight years before I did any of this. So it's kind of, you know, the timing hasn't been better. I've, I've had the four or five years of experience now on YouTube um, I'm ready to transition into a new thing. You know, I'm, I'm working hard, like scripting and coming up with ideas 
and spending a lot of my own money to make it happen. But I am very passionate <laughs> nice. about well, it and I think excited. it's a good payoff. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you're reinventing yourself and, and finding new ways. And I'm definitely going to hit the audiobook YouTube formula. Um, yeah, that formula. he was on. Um, so I follow the, uh, he owns a vid podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So he was on uh, video creators, which is like the YouTube mm-hmm. technique podcast I listen to. Um, but an audiobook is that uh, like Tim Schmoyer? Exactly what I need. Yes. I'm good friends with Tim. He's a good friend. He's awesome. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, I mean, the thing is, it's hard to find advice that doesn't feel scammy, where it's like, oh, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so once you find someone you trust and you're like, oh, you you actually understand this, it's incredibly helpful. Yes. Yeah. Tim's always been a good resource for that. So He has like six or seven kids. It's insane. He's like the ultimate Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, he must have more energy in the day to get through the day than I do. But <laughs> yeah, I, I call him regularly right. with kid, kid advice. Cause he's like, Oh, he's, cool, man. of all people he would know. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. He's got the experience. But anyways. Cool. Thanks again, Dave. I am. I'll invite you back. Thank you very soon. Let's catch up and see where YouTube, Absolutely. your YouTube journey goes. 